everybody, and welcome to New Books in National Security. This is Paul, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Samantha Newbury, a lecturer in contemporary intelligence studies at the University of Salford. She's also the author of Interrogation, Intelligence, and Security, Controversial British Techniques. The book is published by Manchester University Press. Hi, Samantha, and welcome to New Books in National Security. Happy to have you here to talk about the book. Hi, thank you. Uh, Perhaps you could start us off with a little bit just about yourself and how you came to the field of intelligence studies. Okay, yeah. Um, So I've been interested in intelligence studies really since I first went to university as an undergraduate study, uh, undergraduate student. Um, Intelligence studies is quite a new discipline. It's only been around uh, in any kind of real uh, substantive form for, say, 30 years or so. Um, And it addresses the hidden hand in history. So uh, until the the birth of intelligence studies, you could pick up any history book um, on on the Second World War or any other more recent period, and intelligence would be missing. So uh, it's very much been described as the hidden hand in history. It was there. It's informed uh, policymakers' decisions. Um, uh, whether in government or in the military, but it hasn't been studied. It's been left out. So increasingly, it's been uh, it's been paid attention to now in history and also uh, increasingly in political science as well. So that interest stayed with me. Um, it led me to want to do a PhD in intelligence ethics, some aspect of uh, the study of what is right when making decisions about what to do in intelligence. Um, and what I hit upon was... Uh, questions of interrogation techniques, uh, which methods of collection uh, for intelligence are are right, which can be justified and appropriate in what circumstances. And that eventually grew grew into this book. That also subsequently grew into your latest book, I believe. Was that Why Spy? Uh, yes, Why Spy came about um, when I interviewed my co-author on that, Brian Stewart, uh, about the interrogation techniques. Um, but the Why Spy book is uh, is a very broad book about intelligence studies, uh, very much from my co-author's point of view. Uh, he had a long career in intelligence studies, in intelligence itself, um, working as an agent in um, uh, Vietnam, uh, China and other places, uh, as well as having a, a spell in the cabinet office uh, as, uh, as an intelligence officer. So uh, that, that book, Why Spy, is very much uh, a broad coverage of, uh, of intelligence practice and lessons based on my co-author's experiences. And I understand that Mr. Stewart passed away recently after uh, a very amazing life and and a really decorated career. So I'm I'm really sorry for the loss of your friend as well. Thank you. Thank you. He had a a fascinating life and and there are some really, uh, some really uh, uh, appropriate obituaries out there that you can read online. And he's Rory Stewart's father, is he not? Who's also had, quite sort of an adventurous life and has written a number of Mm. books kind of touching on these areas. Mm, Yes. Rory's written some, some really interesting books. Um, I think most, uh, most popular has been his book about when he wrote, he walked across Afghanistan. Yes. Um, That's, that's a very good read. Yeah, it it is. I enjoyed it. Um, Mm. So uh, how did you come to write interrogation intelligence and uh, security? Did that just grow naturally out of your, your PhD dissertation? Yes, it, I mean, it, it differs somewhat from the PhD. Uh, that focused on uh, these particular interrogation techniques that the book is about, the five techniques, which we'll say more about shortly. Um, but it focused on their use in Northern Ireland during the Troubles uh, in the early 1970s, but also addressed other interrogation techniques and other what we can call mistreatment of prisoners in Northern Ireland in the early 1970s. 
um, whereas the book focuses on the five techniques. Um, and it doesn't just address the use of the five techniques of interrogation in Northern Ireland, but addresses them in other cases as well, specifically Aden in the 1960s and Iraq in 2003. So the idea of looking at three cases uh, was to ask the same two uh, fundamental questions of, of all of them. Um, firstly, how the techniques came to be used uh, and what were the results? Did they produce intelligence? Did they improve security? And what other results might have come about? And the reasons for focusing on the five techniques um, was very much the contemporary relevance. So when I started looking at them, uh, as far as the public knew, the last time British forces used these interrogation techniques was 1971. And it then became clear that they'd been used uh, in Iraq in 2003, soon after the coalition invaded there. Um, and more, bro more broadly, the, the, the clear contemporary relevance of controversial interrogation techniques that might be described as torture of course, has been a big issue since the start of the war on terror. A perfect segue into, into the next question, which is just looking for some background exactly on what the so-called five techniques of interrogation are. Of course, yeah. Um, before going into the, the, the kind of outline of the techniques, you can note that uh, they haven't always been used as a group, although they're referred to as the five. There have been cases uh, when, when British forces have used them um, without using all five at once. Um, and also the form that the five have taken do vary from case to case. But it is still possible to talk about them as a group uh, and about, uh, about what they entail. So um, they include deprivation of sight, usually by uh, placing one or more hoods over somebody's head. Um, the playing of white noise, uh, generally at quite loud uh, levels, to block out other sounds um, and uh, is a form of uh, sensory deprivation. Uh, a stress position, um, which is a, a, a physically uncomfortable position, uh, maintained, forced to be maintained for long periods of time. Um, and also deprivation of sleep and um, a very limited diet. So um, in, in the Northern Ireland case, for instance, that was simply just dried bread and water offered every six hours. To people who are familiar with the field will probably sound quite familiar. I, I, I don't imagine that these are uniquely British techniques uh, by any means. I, I've heard of these being used, uh, for example, by American interrogators uh, in Afghanistan, by um, Israeli security services domestically, and a whole range of, of different services use these, I'm assuming. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, They're not unique uh, to the British, but the, the way that they came about uh, in the British context and the way that they did come to be regarded as a set that, that tended to be used together, um, kind of, it does mark them out from some of these other, uh, other, other examples where similar techniques have been used by other forces. Given that your work revolved around interrogation activities by British military and security services, how was this in terms of impacting your research? Did you have to rely heavily on the UK's access to information legislation, or was there a great deal that uh, was already declassified and available to you? The Freedom of Information Act has been hugely useful to people studying intelligence uh, in particular, but in the case of these techniques, 
the vast majority of the material was already in the public domain. Uh, and that's because uh, for all three of my case studies, uh, Aden, Northern Ireland and Iraq, there were public inquiries into the use of these techniques. And that not only created a, a paper trail, but uh, led that paper trail to be put into the public domain. So for the, the Aden and Northern Ireland cases, that's long enough ago that the material has made its way into the National Archives in London that anyone can access. Uh, and that's the kinds of records where you've got the Prime Minister's office communicating with the Foreign Office and the Ministry of Defence saying, what are we going to tell uh, this inquiry? This inquiry wants to know how these techniques came about, how we invented them, what should we tell them? So we've got those records. Uh, and for the Iraq case much more recently, uh, following in line with the the trend with very recent uh, public inquiries in the UK, the material that they created and that they collected has been put online. Now, not all of it, because there are tens, if not hundreds of thousands of pages that they've created, uh, but there are certainly thousands of pages uh, on, on the website uh, for the inquiry, which in this case was the Bahamusa inquiry. Uh, and that includes uh, communications within the military from the time uh, of the interrogations, um, emails between uh, people in the military subsequently saying, okay, we realize these techniques were used, uh, what are we going to do about it? But also material created by the inquiry itself. So that's the written witness statements that they create, that they collected from anybody uh, who was involved in any way, uh, and transcripts of the hearings. There were 115 days of hearings for the Bahamusa inquiry and the transcripts um, of all of the cross-examination of every witness that went before the inquiry uh, is available online. Given that your work um, starts with the aid and emergency uh, in the book, I, I think we'll start there. Um, so, so some of our listeners, and I know uh, I'm included in this uh, in terms of I was initially unfamiliar with the historical context of the aid and emergency. Uh, so perhaps you could just briefly outline uh, the aid and emergency, and then how interrogation factored into the British colonial response. Mm. Uh, the Aden case, the Aden emergency, was very much um, the latest in a long train of emergencies connected with the end of the British Empire. So Aden uh, was a, a small territory, 73 square miles, and a very urban environment that had been uh, a very important port for the British and was a major military base in in the region as well. Um, and there was a nationalist movement, a movement that wanted independence from Britain, um, as, as had also been seen uh, in, in the other colonies, Malaya, for instance. Um, this expressed itself with uh, attacks, terrorist-style attacks, um, on members of uh, the British military, the British police who were there, the British government and civil servants. Uh, there was an awful lot of grenades thrown at them, uh, bombs planted, um, and even mortars fired. The real difficulty in Aden was that the locals were being intimidated by these insurgents or terrorists, depending on how you want to, to refer to them. So they weren't cooperating with the authorities. They were, uh, well, a lot of them empathized with the insurgency anyway, but any uh, who were perhaps on the fence were discouraged from telling the, the British authorities uh, what they knew about who was in the insurgency, what their aims were and so on, uh, because of the simply the strength and the intimidation being issued by the insurgent group. So it was difficult to gain intelligence. 
Uh, if you don't have the cooperation of the people, it's difficult to find out uh, who's in the insurgency, what they want, where their bases are, and so on. Uh, so interrogation became it became a crucial source of intelligence in the aid and emergency. Um, it produced intelligence uh, that uh, led to arrests and the seizure of weapons and arms, um, which of course helped uh, the British there. Um, but it was still a losing battle uh, in Aden. Um, the High Commissioner, the British High Commissioner in Aden, um, has uh, uh, well, the, the series of High Commissioners uh, stated just how important interrogation was, uh, and that's very much clear uh, from the the records in the National Archives uh, that they emphasise the importance of intelligence uh, and of interrogation as the main source uh, of intelligence, um, and. In doing so, they emphasise the importance of getting more resources, more interrogators uh, from the British Army. It was very much the British military that were the experts in the five techniques and that took those five techniques uh, to Aden uh, and started using them there. So it seems like this case perhaps differed from the case that you examine in Basra, Iraq, where the use of the five techniques uh, seems to have been very controversial. At the time of the Aden emergency, were these techniques uh, known back home in the UK that they were being applied? Was this causing controversy or were, were we not even entering a period where this sort of activity would, would be controversial? The treatment of prisoners in Aden was known about uh, in the UK. Uh, Amnesty International, for instance, um, and the International Committee of the Red Cross in particular were very concerned about the treatment of prisoners in Aden. But at the time, back in the UK, uh, this treatment was being reported by by the press, uh, but there wasn't there wasn't anywhere anywhere like the kind of concern that was seen when uh, prisoners were being arguably mistreated in Northern Ireland, much closer to home, or in Iraq, much more recently. Um, and part of the reason for that is that uh, Aden was perceived as being a long way from home, um, and it was a time when human rights. Uh, were only really, they weren't as prominent, they weren't as well known or as much of a concern as they are today. I think you alluded to this, but did the, the British deployment of the five techniques lead to actionable intelligence for British authorities in Aden? I think that it did produce intelligence. There, there is a uh, a kind of a gap in the records in that we know the five techniques were used at the interrogation centre in Aden, which was at Fort Morbett, and we know that intelligence was produced during that period, but we can't be absolutely certain that it was the use of the five techniques that created uh, that intelligence. So we don't know um, whether uh, the intelligence produced was a direct result of using the five techniques on, say, a particular individual who produced that intelligence. Rather, we know that the techniques were used during this period and that they were probably used on all of the prisoners, but we can't be sure. Um, and we know that intelligence came out of the interrogation centre at that time. So it seems that, they, that the techniques did uh, help produce intelligence, but we can't be absolutely certain of the link and exactly what, what, what the nature of that link was. Okay. Moving on to 1969 to 1971, the Troubles in Ireland, what was the situation uh, for the UK and, and in Ireland uh, that led British authorities to introduce the five techniques there? Mm. 
Well, yeah. So the troubles, um, we say the troubles began in Northern Ireland in 1969 because that's when the army was sent in. Um, and, and we must remember, we take this for granted now, but how significant it was that the British army was sent on the streets within the United Kingdom to maintain law and order. And that was because the, the, the police force in Northern Ireland was simply not able to maintain order. Uh, so the troubles began uh, with uh, civil rights protests, largely by the Catholic community, which led to violent clashes with police uh, and with loyalist communities. So that's those communities who supported the, the British government and the British police. Um, and that deteriorated to, to an extent that the army uh, was sent in in 1969. And at first, the locals welcomed uh, the army. That was known as the honeymoon period. It was seen as an improvement. But the army quickly uh, came to be seen as being biased uh, against uh, the Catholic community, um, which in turn incited the IRA to increase uh, its campaign uh, and further recruited people to the IRA. The major policy initiative of 1971 was the introduction of internment without trial, which bears similarities to what we see uh, discussions um, uh, taking place in connection with the war on terror uh, about how long we should keep people imprisoned or detained without putting them on trial, uh, simply because we suspect them of being involved uh, in terrorism. So the introduction of internment without trial in August 1971 gave the opportunity uh, for mass arrests, and it gave the opportunity to interrogate those people who were arrested for a long period of time, because if you're interning them without trial, you can hold them for a long period of time. And interrogation for intelligence was used on quite a wide scale under internment for people arrested under internment. But the five techniques were used in a much uh, more um, narrow uh, kind of frame uh, with 12 of those men who were arrested on the first day of internment uh, being subjected to the five techniques and a further two men uh, arrested in October of 1971 being interrogated that way. Are these 12 plus 2, I understand, uh, subjected to the five techniques because they were believed to be of a special intelligence value due to their connections in the IRA? Yes, it was believed that they were all uh, important members uh, of the IRA and that would therefore uh, produce intelligence. Um, It has since been acknowledged by the authorities, the British authorities, and again, this is in the archives, uh, that at least one of them was poorly selected and had no intelligence to give. But they also um, uh, maintain that uh, crucial life-saving intelligence was produced by this interrogation operation. Mm-hmm. And what was the UK government's response, uh, indeed the international response as well, uh, to the interrogation activities that took place during the Troubles? Mm. The UK's response, um, the UK responded to the widespread criticism that came out when it became known that the five techniques had been used. So um, when the first uh, of the 12 men who were interrogated using the five techniques made it into uh, the um, internment camps, so they were released from the interrogation center into uh, internment, they were able to get a message out to the press um, about the techniques that they'd been exposed to. And that received uh, widespread criticism in the press in the UK and internationally. The UK was forced to respond to that, uh, that there were also all sorts of other allegations uh, that came out of the introduction of internment, say that people were beaten when they were arrested, for instance. Um, and that led to uh, two public inquiries. 
first one was the Compton Inquiry, which is uh, connected to allegations of uh, of ill treatment. Um, and that found that the five techniques had been used, um, but said that they weren't brutality, which I think many people uh, then and now would contest. That then led on to the Parker Inquiry, which looked into whether the interrogation techniques that had been used should continue to be used. And on balance of opinion uh, of the Parker Inquiry, the government decided uh, to ban the five techniques from all future use. And the then Prime Minister stated in the House of Commons on the 2nd of March 1972 that the five techniques would be banned from all future use by British forces. Um, that ban also then was contained in a new interrogation direct forces. Um, internationally, the uh, apart from the press criticism, the Republic of Ireland was the main um, kind of uh, source of, of criticism and uh, more substantially of action. Uh, they took a case to the uh, European uh, Commission of Human Rights and then the European Court of Human Rights, alleging that the UK had breached various articles of the European Convention on Human Rights uh, in Northern Ireland, including that the five techniques were torture. Now, in its 1978 ruling, the European Court of Human Rights uh, found that the five techniques were in breach of the convention, but that they didn't quite meet the threshold for torture. But interestingly, this is now being contested. There are uh, lawyers and the Republic of Ireland uh, today acting on behalf of the surviving member of that group of members of that group of 14 who were exposed to the five techniques in Northern Ireland. And on the basis of the material in the National Archives in London, many, much of which informs the book, uh, they are arguing that uh, the British government withheld information from the European Court of Human Rights and that therefore the ruling that the techniques were not torture ought to be uh, uh, kind of reconsidered. So um, the, the application to the European Court for them to reconsider that judgment uh, has been put in and, and uh, a response is being awaited. Activity is having echoes still four mm. decades later, it sounds like. Mm, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Moving closer to the present day, uh, were some of these historical lessons applied when the UK brought these interrogation measures into their occupying forces in Basra, Iraq, or were the old patterns just sort of repeated anew? The techniques came to be used in Iraq in a very different way. Um, so whilst they were an approved part of policy in uh, all of the other cases, Aden, Northern Ireland, and those other uh, conflicts connected with the end of empire that saw the techniques used, uh, there they were, they were used as a, a conscious decision that interrogation was needed uh, and that the military should go in and bring those techniques and apply them. In Iraq, uh, the techniques were used in a very narrow um, uh, but still, of course, controversial example in Basra uh, over a three-day period in September of 2003 uh, in one building, uh, a temporary uh, detention facility, uh, where a group of Iraqi civilians were being held on suspicion of being involved in terrorist activities. And there the techniques came to be used uh, very much on an ad hoc uh, kind of fashion. They were the idea of the soldiers who were there guarding 
um, and uh, supposedly looking after these detainees at the time. Uh, some of the techniques were used because they were believed, uh, these soldiers believed that they were necessary um, and required to prepare these detainees for questioning. Um, and others, such as um, not being fed regularly, was simply just an oversight that they, they, they didn't do their job properly uh, in looking after these uh, prisoners. But in terms of um, applying uh, lessons or, or not, uh, that's where, where the, the Iraq case is particularly interesting because uh, another public inquiry was launched, which was very large and very expensive into the, the claims that these techniques had been used there. Um, and it was found that the 1972 ban, uh, which had been contained in the new interrogation directive, so it said the techniques will not be used again, um, it found that the Ministry of Defence collectively as an institution had forgotten this ban and that the ban had fallen out of all of the guidelines and directives for the military. So much like was the case uh, in 1972, uh, after 2003, there was another new interrogation directive containing the ban on the five techniques and that ban was added back into training for members of the military who were going to be not only interrogating suspects, but uh, handling uh, detainees uh, and looking after them, being, being responsible for detainees. It was nowhere near sort of on the scale or level of intentionality as we might have seen in contrast with the U.S. forces in Iraq. Um, that's right, yeah. I mean, there were other... Uh, there were other interrogation operations and controversial techniques the UK were using in Iraq. But in, mm -hmm. in terms of uh, these, these five techniques, they were used uh, in this, uh, this isolated case for a whole combination of factors, uh, including, um, and as I say, a, a belief that they were uh, going to be valuable for interrogation, but also this, um, this absence of the ban from the literature and from uh, the training that the soldiers involved had had. So it was a very different um, uh, set of circumstances to, the, to those cases where it was, a, it, was, it was approved or required by policymakers, by military decision makers and by the intelligence community. And who was Bahamusa? You made reference to the Bahamusa inquiry uh, earlier on in our discussion. Mm. Yes, he was one of the detainees um, held... Um, and exposed to the five techniques in September of 2003. Uh, the reason the inquiry is named after him is that he uh, lost his life as a result of his experiences uh, at the hands of the, these British soldiers uh, at this time. Um, and the inquiry found that uh, he lost his life as a combination of the use of the five techniques, which uh, weakened him, and a beating that he sustained. Uh, a lot of these... Uh, a lot of the cases where these techniques and these kinds of techniques are used, there is physical uh, beatings taking place uh, as well. And in Bahamusa's case, the combination of the five techniques and the beatings uh, were found uh, to have uh, caused his death. And he was noted to have sustained 93 external injuries. Charges ever, uh, ever pressed against anyone involved in that or just, just the inquiry was the result? There was a court-martial, um, and uh, one of the soldiers involved became the UK's first convicted war criminal uh, for his involvement uh, in the treatment of Bahamusa. So, uh, but there has been criticism of, of, of the fact that, that more people have not been charged, um, and there have been some moves to re-examine that, given the evidence collected by the Bahamusa inquiry. So we might hear more about that. 
Moving to, I guess, a more general overview of the subject, what's your feeling on the overall utility of, of interrogation in intelligence and that sliding scale of, uh, of severity and, you know, these situations where sometimes people refer to them as a ticking time bomb situation where someone may have, as you alluded to in the Troubles, information that could stop uh, attacks, for example. Um, just generally speaking, wh- where has your research led you to, to sort of land on this topic? Um, well, I think that there is evidence to suggest that interrogation in general produces intelligence. I don't think that's uh, likely to be contested by anyone. Um, in terms of these kinds of controversial techniques, it's still difficult to say because uh, the techniques differ from case to case and the impact that they have on an individual differs depending on that individual's uh, mental state, their background, their health and so on. Um, and so it's difficult to speak even about the five techniques uh, in general terms. But that there is evidence to suggest that these kinds of techniques might encourage the production of intelligence sometimes. But I think even then... Um, the use of techniques that might be uh, considered to be torture, I don't think they're ever justified. I think there's always uh, another way uh, to pursue uh, intelligence. Well, Samantha, you've been very generous with your time. I appreciate it so much. But before we go, perhaps you can tell us uh, what projects are up next for you. Sure, yeah. I'm just on the early stages of a new project. I'm sticking with the issue of intelligence ethics, so uh, ethical questions uh, connected with the collection of intelligence uh, and I'm sticking with the troubles in Northern Ireland as well um, but I'm looking at this time um, the uh, allegations uh, the very wide range of allegations of collusion so we're talking about um, the, uh, the use of informers in the loyalist groups in Northern Ireland the loyalist paramilitary and terrorist groups uh, who were uh, employed by the military and the police to provide intelligence. And uh, the, the question that there was, um, uh, there are all sorts of allegations of questionable um, treatment uh, of, of the informers. For example, cases where um, it was suspected that a, a, an informer had been involved in a murder and that murder therefore was not investigated properly in order to protect that informer uh, so that they would be able to carry on producing intelligence. So there's a, there's, there's a whole range of issues about ethics and intelligence there that I'm starting to explore. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Samantha. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You're very welcome. 